Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents. This Saturday, the 22nd of October, you're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna and I am taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Of course, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. If you want to keep in touch, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so look us up on those social media platforms. In the second part of today, in the second part of the program, we're going to revisit an interview we did with Andy Hall. Andy Hall is a um, investigative journalist and an activist around labour rights in the Asia Pacific region. Um, he uh, spearheaded a campaign against Ansel, the um, PPE company and uh, also manufacturer of um, latex gloves for PPE, so the majority in the health industry. And of course, um, Ansel made um, spectacular profits during COVID, but uh, has some very reprehensible slavery practices in its production chain. Uh, So uh, we'll revisit the interview we conducted with Andy Hall about the um, slave labour case that's being brought against Ansel in the United States. But of course, first up, news from around the region. And we are going to start by looking at some progress being made in the trade union movement around just transitions. The launch of the Trade Union Guide of Practice for a Just Transition was launched online on the 21st of October, so yesterday. The guide aims to assist trade unions in developing frameworks that can be used in just transition plans and campaigns to protect workers who will be adversely impacted by the transition, not only from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources, but by the introduction of new technologies. The guide considers context and realities in the global north where automotive and steel manufacturing jobs will be lost, and the global south, where jobs will become more precarious, with most workers earning poverty wages. The Guide of Practice is a toolbox of ideas that can be adopted by the unions and pro-worker supporters that include communities, civil society organisations and other organisations that are part of alliances, networks and movements that support a just transition. The guide has two sections on the current economic and political context and steps that unions can follow in building strategies and plans to achieve the transition on workers' terms. The guide is anchored on five principles, a high bar transition, creation of decent jobs, social dialogue, creation of permanent institutions for a just transition and affordable energy. Addressing gender inequality and ending poverty are also described as part as key to the transition. 
Moving now to Australia, whistleblowers say they felt under pressure to downgrade seriousness of safety issues, but Sydney Metro disputes these union claims. A worker died of a heart attack during construction of the Sydney Metro Tunnel near Barangaroo Station amid allegations from the unions that a defibrillator was not readily available in the construction zone. Sydney Metro strongly disputes a union claim. However, it acknowledged additional defibrillators were deployed in the tunnels after the incident, which occurred on the 6th of July. There have also been allegations the incident was initially recorded by Sydney Metro as a minor incident, indicating that a worker felt unwell, but it was later upgraded to a serious incident. Obviously, the worker died of a heart attack. Whistleblowers inside Sydney Metro Management told Guardian Australia they felt under pressure to downgrade the seriousness of safety issues and that learnings from incidents are not being shared. The incident has come to light as part of the Guardian's investigation into safety breaches on the $40 billion Sydney Metro and Metro West project. Of course, that has to be seen in light of... (coughs) Excuse me the um, ongoing industrial dispute um, in the public service in New South Wales. Moving now to New Zealand, the 50th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act was being celebrated by the union movement this week as a win for all working people. The New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, the NZCTU, is welcoming the announcement from the Minister for Women, Jan Tanetti, that the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women, the NACEW or NASU, would be asked to advise a minister on pay transparency policy. Council of Trade Unions National Secretary, Melissa Ansel Bridges, who is also a member of NASU, the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women, said the announcement was a fitting way to celebrate the Act. She said that unions have been calling on the government to implement pay transparency measures for a long time and that in her view it's great to see the government stepping up to the challenge. She added that a huge amount of progress has been made toward pay equity and that there is still a way to go to achieve equity across all genders and ethnicities. New data was recently released to show that the public sector gender pay gap has fallen to its lowest ever level at 7.7%. Ansel Bridges said the record improvements showed the value of these policies. She concluded that the pay transparency mechanisms in the public sector are really making a difference and now it's time to see those mechanisms delivered more widely. And in Iran, workers in many industries have joined the strikes which have been gaining momentum since last week as Iran's anti-government protest movement has entered its second month. On Tuesday, the 18th of October, the workers at Haftape Sugarcane Complex, which we've covered their industrial disputes for a long time on this program, those workers um, joined in the southwestern uh, Khuzestan province, um, the, the strikes in oil, gas and petrochemical sectors in southern Iran. Workers of several phases of South Pars gas conden- uh, condensate field and uh, the Bushahir Petrochemical Company and the Hengam Petrochemical Company, so three different um, petrochemical companies, all of which operate at uh, Asaluye Complex, um, which is the Abadan Petrochemical Company and Refinery, 
All of these workers, I'm not going to list them all, um, off the coast of the Persian Gulf have been on strike in solidarity with the protests across Iran. And all of these protests, as people recall, were ignited by the death in custody in the um, morality police's custody of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini. At least 100 striking employees of Asulaye petrochemical plant have been arrested in the past few days, while many are threatened with being fired or replaced by Chinese workers if they do not break their strike. The government has blocked access to mobile internet services to prevent videos of the strikes from being posted on social media. And in Turkey, an explosion in a coal mine in Amasra on the 14th of October has killed 41 miners. 110 miners were underground in the mine, which belongs to the state-owned Turkish Hard Coal Corporation, the TTK, when the explosion occurred. 58 miners were rescued and 11 are in hospital, some still in serious condition, according to the reports. Rescue workers have found the bodies of 41 miners. The explosion puts the spotlight on the safety situation in the Turkish mines. The Western Black Sea region is known as the Hard Coal Mining Basin, where there has been mining since the 19th century. Records show that around 5,000 miners have been killed in the region during that time, with several deadly accidents over the last decade. In 2010, 30 workers were killed in Zonguldak. In 2013, eight were killed in Kozlu. Yes, the situation uh, for health and safety in mines, not just in Turkey, but we know China's mining industry is one of the most dangerous in the world. So organising the only way forward for those workers. It's 12 minutes past nine o'clock. Actually, 13 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm going to go to some community announcements and then we're going to hear a track. Uh, We're going to hear Eternity by Kutcher Edwards, but community announcements before that. If you're a charity or community group looking for office space or a co-working space, Ross House has rooms of different sizes available from 15 metres squared to 100 metres squared at affordable prices. Many charity groups already call Ross House home, so if you're interested in joining a vibrant community or working towards social justice and environmental sustainability, please visit rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650 1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. I've had a few jobs over the years, none I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand, in a secure career I love. Come on kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. When I'm close to you, there is no better place to hold you in my arms. 
see the smile on your face to whisper in your ear tell you everything's alright when we're laid together gaze into the night I know where I would rather be cause I need you here Close to me And I would wait for you For eternity When we're not together I cannot touch you I know not what I do For our love is forever it was meant to Not stop the wanting It is our destiny I need you here 
Kutcher Edwards with Eternity. Beautiful song. You're on Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go straight into our feature story for the morning, which is us revisiting our interview with Andy Hall about the suing of Ansel in a United States court. Personal protective equipment giant Ansel is being taken to task over its ties to a Malaysian glove maker alleged to have subjected workers to forced labour and squalid living conditions inside shipping containers. Andy, you are one of the main people behind the investigation and you're the person who brought a complaint to the US Customs Department. Tell us what your investigation uncovered. Uh, this is one of the worst uh, situations in the glove industry that I found in, in many years. Uh, I think it, it was a situation which had many of these indicators of forced labour, the ILO's indicators of forced labour, but particularly really poor accommodation, workers who paid so much recruitment fees, there was evidence of um, violence, harassment, really difficult working conditions, very long hours, um, passport confiscation, deduction from workers' salaries for things um, like food and, and other things. And, and it was really a difficult situation. And, and as we investigated that case and as we made complaints, uh, we also faced um, retaliation against our two main whistleblowers in the case. And they both had to, um, they, they both ended up back in Bangladesh. One of them had to flee from the, from the, from the company. So it's a really difficult situation. And, and as I say, the US Customs and Border Protection has now blocked all of the Brightways goods from coming into the US. So um, they've agreed with us that the indicators of forced labor um, uh, were, were detected. So it's a very difficult case, a very sad situation. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's concerning. That's why we're, we're taking this case in the US courts. A lot of those workers are migrant workers in Malaysia. What kind of backgrounds do they predominantly come from? So most of the workers in Brightway were from uh, Nepal, Bangladesh, um, India, um, but, but some other nationalities also. And, and some of those workers paid very high recruitment fees up to like maybe the equivalent of $5,000. So they came from incredibly poor backgrounds. Uh, maybe they didn't have any opportunities for working and for income in their, um, in their, um, in their lives. So it was, it was a really difficult situation for them. And they came to Malaysia to try to earn money, to try to, you know, eke out an existence. And, and they're very low-skilled workers, most of them, although some of them may have had skills, and yeah, but mostly uh, low-skilled manual labourers who were working on uh, glove production lines. Can you describe um, a little bit about the way that the workers organised, if they had any scope at all to organise? What were the industrial relations type conditions for workers at Brightway? You've already talked a little bit about the retaliation against the whistleblowers, but can you talk a little bit about the scope to organise or are unions just smashed altogether? 
I mean, it's a very difficult situation in Malaysia uh, because the union generally, um, with, with very few exceptions, reach out to migrant workers because they don't see potential to organize them or to get membership fees from them. There are some unions in a few glove factories, but almost both at the domestic or the regional or the international level um, to put um, resources and efforts into organizing workers. So this is a sector which has little to no uh, union coverage. I mean, there are some worker committees within some of the companies, the club companies in Malaysia. We're not aware of any in this in this uh, company. So, I mean, essentially the workers are on their own. And, and like many of the work that I've had to do in the glove sector, it's essentially been myself and, and the guys that uh, and, the, and the ladies that I work with have, um, have really tried hard to, to represent these workers. Um, on, on a global platform, uh, engaging Amsel, engaging other companies, uh, engaging media to try to get their voices out. But, but I would say that the voices that we've got out from the workers are not organized voices. These are, you know, cries for help and, and they're very much individual workers helping us, whistleblowers helping us. So I would say that this is an area where there's almost no um, social dialogue, no effective uh, industrial relations, no unions. Uh, no organized worker voice. It's very much us trying our best to, to get a voice of workers. And, and unfortunately, you know, the other way that workers' voice comes out is through these audits, you know, these social compliance audits. And what we found in Brightway and also across the whole glove sector is the complete failure of these social compliance audits to actually um, represent worker voice, you know. So, you know, the, the, what the audits were saying was there was no problems or the problems were not forced labor. They weren't very serious. So, not only is there no industrial relations, no worker organizing, no organized worker voice, but the one method that can sometimes result in workers' voices being heard, which is these social compliance auditors, audits, which are supposed to be independent, also very much failed. So the workers were really without a voice uh, and without the mechanisms you know, to do. Even, even when we helped them, they faced retaliation, they faced harassment. So it's a really uh, difficult area to, to work in. How has Ansel, and there's another company that's been implicated in this Kimberly Clark Corporation, how have those two companies responded to the allegations? I mean, I've engaged Ansel. I was going back as we we're preparing for this legal um, legal battle in the US and, and also, you know, for the various media like ABC and, and Sydney Morning Herald and Fairfax and stuff. I was going through all my communications and I started you know as soon as I heard about this issue at Brightway I immediately engaged Ansel um, and it's been little to no um, communication from their side I think we had one call on, on some other issues but I've been engaging them because generally when I get information I, I will share it with the buyers um, I will share it with the media I will share it with investors I will share it with governments um, and I shared that information with them uh, and there was little to no response and, and I've continued engaging them um, as things have developed and I've had almost uh, zero a response from them with with a few exceptions there was one call and there i think there was one email recently once this issue of litigation started uh, and then also once we decided to take this litigation and again the workers have been paid back their recruitment fees after a, a huge battle and after the u.s customs uh, imposed the sanctions but we believe that that's not enough you know these workers suffered for so long in conditions of uh, alleged forced labor and we believe that this repayment of their recruitment fees um, is not sufficient to, to to represent the loss that they suffered and also 
we don't believe, particularly with Ansel, that they have actually been involved in, in, in remediating anything in this company. They may well have been, we just don't know about it. But we know that Kimberly Clark, for instance, the other major buyer, has been very active, very proactive, uh, very engaging with us. But Ansel has not been. And that's why we took this case, because we believe that these buyers, these massive buyers, need to be held responsible for the forced labor situation in their supply chain. And, and we reached out to the companies many months ago through the, the council that we've hired in the uh, the workers have hired in the US um, to try to engage them to try to uh, mediate this this issue uh, so we didn't have to take it to court and and they've been very much defiant and and refused to um, involve in any kind of uh, mediation um, so that's why we had to take the case to court because we don't believe that they're they're addressing these complaints with the seriousness with which they need to be taken and we believe that we need to to, to file this case against them both to get the attention of uh, the company but also their investors and, and the wider international community as to the challenges that workers are being uh, that are facing here well my next question actually is about this court case in the us um it's being promoted as a case about modern slavery as you said in ansel's supply chain um, can you actually describe for the listeners exactly what is this? Like what kind of forum is this matter being heard in? What sort of court has jurisdiction for a case of modern slavery? So, I mean, obviously I'm not the lawyer in the case, but I'm very much engaged with it. I mean, this is a case under, under the US um, legislation, US case law. Uh, against Ansel's subsidiary in the US. Obviously, Ansel is headquartered, as you know, in Melbourne, but they're, they're, they have a subsidiary in the US. So we're taking this, the workers are taking this action against Ansel's subsidiary uh, for complicity in modern slavery or human trafficking related issues. So what we're saying is that the company was complicit um, or, or if they didn't know, they should have known. And so we're using the, the US court system to take this action uh, because obviously our lawyer is, is very expert in, in these modern slavery issues. So we're taking the case against Ansel's US subsidiary, and we believe that they, they need to be held responsible and they need to remediate the, the situation of modern slavery that we've found and that the US Customs and Border Protection Department have found in their supply chain. Well, Andy, thank you so, so much for your time on the program today, particularly as I've squeezed this in while you're on personal time. Uh, just as a final question, where to from here? If you lose the case in the US, where to? If you win the case, where to? I think we've managed to raise the profile of the adequacy or, or otherwise of Ansel's sustainability commitments uh, and also, you know, to look at their modern slavery statement. And I've been raising these issues with their investors this week in London also to discuss these related issues. And so I think whether we win or lose the case, and, and we do feel very confident that we will win the case, um, uh, I think that the, the, the attention is being focused on the adequacy of Ansel's modern slavery commitments, definitely. And I think that um, uh, whether, as I say, whether we win or lose the case, that the profile or the, the, the importance of these issues has been raised by the, by the litigation. And I think Ansel is, is, you know, and I think they, they have been aware for some time that there are many challenges in the, 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 the adequacy of their modern slavery prevention. That was Andy Hall speaking about uh, slavery in Ansel supply chain and the legal case. That does bring us to the end of Asia Pacific Currents. Thanks for listening. I'm Giselle Hanna and uh, we'll be back next Saturday. Coming up next is Palestine Remembered.